Also, no Melania, you know, no family. You know, he's in a courtroom. What's the stock American political move when you're on trial? You bring your family. You make yourself a human being. And he just, he walked in by himself and just shuffled up the aisle and and sat down among his lawyers. (laughs) It is really, I didn't even think about that, but she wasn't there. Come on, your wife doesn't go to your arraignment? That's like basic human, that's like basic human behavior. Yeah, barren, yeah. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, a senior editor at The New Yorker. Donald Trump made history yesterday as the first former U.S. president to be arraigned. According to the indictment, he repeatedly and fraudulently falsified New York business records to conceal criminal conduct that hid damaging information from the voting public during the 2016 presidential election. Trump was charged with 34 felony counts, a shocking number, to which he has pleaded not guilty. And with that, the first presidential campaign slash criminal prosecution begins. Eric Latch, who writes about New York City politics for The New Yorker, spent hours waiting outside the courthouse in Lower Manhattan and covering the chaos of the entire day. When we spoke on Tuesday evening, he had just returned from the historic arraignment. So clearly you've had um, a marathon reporting day, um, probably a very weird reporting day, days. This has been a days-long effort to get into this courthouse. Right, two days, Um, And so... Gosh, I guess we should just start with um, the big news. So Trump was charged with 34 felonies. That's clearly a lot of felonies. Yes. Um, so what exactly are they? Well, the district attorney's office in Manhattan says that he falsified business records as part of a scheme to, quote, catch and kill basically embarrassing personal episodes like with women you know, as part of his effort to become president in the in the 2016 cycle. So the one we've all heard about is Stormy Daniels, but there, there's more than that. It sounds right. Like. Yeah. So there's a there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of other ones. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I you know I basically I started lining up on Monday 2 p.m. outside the courthouse and then got into the courthouse around one o'clock this afternoon and they unsealed the indictment sort of around the time of the arraignment, which is scheduled for 2.15. Um, so I haven't actually gotten a chance to look through all the details of the of the indictment, which I think is why you're, you're asking me this to, to troll me a little bit, that I haven't <laughs> been able to sit down with the paper yet. But yeah, it, it's sort of, it's broader than just the Stormy Daniels case, which I think is sort of was the operating assumption of lots of people sort of going into today. You know, that there's a kind of a broader argument that the DA's office wants to make, whether you buy it or not. The Stormy Daniels situation was one instance in a sort of broader campaign that Trump engaged in to basically protect his reputation with money while running for president. And because he was protecting his reputation while running for president, is the idea that this is election interference? Yeah. I mean, that's what that's what one of the prosecutors on the case got up in court today and said that, that this was an illegal effort, an illegal conspiracy to undermine the integrity of the 2016 election. So they're, they're very much seeing it or they want to make the case that it's, it's, it's an election integrity issue. Which makes sense because as someone who has read the indictment, um, there is a, a point. <laughs> Enlighten it's, me, please. It's like point nineteen, but basically there's a a place in the indictment where it says um, at one point the defendant Trump directed a lawyer to delay making a payment to 
a second woman who he was, you know, you know trying to— Karen McDougal. Karen McDougal, who he was trying to hush up. Yeah. And he told that lawyer that if they could delay the payment until after the election, then they might just be able to avoid paying it altogether because at that point it wouldn't matter if the story were public. Right. So that, I think, um, everyone's been sort of talking about how the obvious— argument from the defense here is paying hush money to a, an adult film star when you're, you know, married to someone else. Like, that sounds like a personal expense. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of reasons why you would pay hush money aside from, you know, wanting to win an election. Yeah. I mean, the other part of the case that, again, that the, the prosecution hinted at today and that it will probably be, you know, unpacked further in the media and then in the courtroom as this sort of plays out is just this falsifying records, you know, as, mm-hmm. a, as a part of this scheme. Can you talk a little bit, because I was under the impression that the falsification of business records in New York, that that could be, that's sometimes a misdemeanor, unless it's connected with a larger crime. Uh, you'd have to, you know, I, I advise you to consult a lawyer, <laughs> basically. Uh, you know, I'm just wondering I, I, if they explained in court why this is, a, these are felonies and not misdemeanors. I, you know, they said at one point, one of the prosecutors said that this office, as in the district attorney's office, has a longstanding interest in the integrity of business records in Manhattan. You know, it's like, I think that they're, they're kind of like, well, this is in our backyard and we're allowed to sort of police our backyard. I mean, that, that that's the extent of the argument right now. Like whether you want to, you know, how persuaded you are by that, um, I don't know. It, it struck me as a kind of funny thing to say, you know, that, that we've yeah. got a longstanding interest in, in the integrity of these records. But that's, that's you know, but I think it think, does— Do you think it could be read as like a, a way of just emphasizing that this isn't a— um, a politically motivated or personally motivated prosecution. Yeah, that this I mean, is just I something think, I think that the that Manhattan DA does. Exactly. I think that that is what they're saying, right? That it's like, yeah, this happened here. That's why we're bringing the case here, you know, that came to our attention and and, and, and we have an interest in it. It sounded a little lame in the courtroom, but it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> and to not prosecute that if you were aware of it would be political. I mean, it's political either way, yeah. kind of. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, just walk us through what happened in the in the courts. I mean, there was so much speculation about, you know, whether Trump would be put in handcuffs, this question of a mugshot, right. you know, whether the judge would issue a gag order. I yeah. was personally wondering whether, um, you know, bail would be um, something in question, although apparently bail was never even – that's not even a thing for cases of this kind. The, the, as the judge pointed out, it's interesting because, you know, all of this is happening against a backdrop where in New York, as in other states, there's this – very intense political debate about bail, uh, pretrial detention. And um, the judge today pointed out that these offenses are not bail eligible under yeah. New York's current rules. Um, and so ba- basically, so so yeah, so, so just to back up, an arraignment is, you know, a, a defendant's first appearance before a judge in a criminal case um, in New York City. Criminal defendants in Manhattan specifically are typically arraigned on the in a sort of special courtroom that's just an arraignment courtroom on the first floor of Manhattan Criminal Court. If you've ever seen Law and Order, like they kind of recreate the feeling of this where it's like, you know, it's almost like it's an assembly line. You know, it's like next, next, next. I, I don't watch Law and Order, but I watch Better Call Saul and that's very much the uh, yeah. the vibe. <laughs> yeah, pick your, pick your legal procedure. In and out, few uh, minutes. Yeah, and, and it's basically like they really take, you know, even serious assault cases, murder cases, like arraignments don't take very long. Um, you know, they take 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And basically, you know, it's like, what are the charges? Who's the defendant? Does he have a record? Open warrants, you know, and then kind of a discussion of bail. Um, and whether, like, this person is going to be locked up before trial. And, you know, in Trump's case, in white-collar cases, in cases where, um, you know, unlike if they – if you get in a fight at a bar and they arrest you and then you're 
brought before a judge like that night or the next day or whatever. Like when there's a big grand jury investigation, like in the Trump case, often the arraignments work a little bit different because the facts of the case are just better known to the DA's office and everything's kind of been in slower motion. The DA's office and the lawyers of the person being investigated have been in contact and things like that. And so, yeah, there was this question of of like, you know, how will the arraignment of Trump, how will the arraignment of like a former president work just because of so many factors, getting Trump from Florida to New York, the Secret Service and security, and then the, like the question of just how he's going to be treated, you know, like the, the balance of the privileges extended to a former president, yeah. you know, versus the kind of we want to treat everyone equally, you know, so so – you know, he was not handcuffed. He walked in and walked out of the courtroom, like, on his own, you know. And then th- the bail was not even sort of part of the discussion. But then, interestingly, the arraignment took, like, an hour, in part because, you know, I think the district attorney's office just wanted to get on the record their concerns about Trump's public comments about this case. Um, and I think, you know, they wanted to basically sort of start the process of – you know, just that they wanted to tell the judge, get on the record that they were concerned about Trump's recent posts sort of warning that there would be violence if he was indicted. Trump posted a picture of him and the Manhattan district attorney where he's like holding a baseball bat next to the district attorney's head. And, you know, there's this whole back and forth and the judge was sort of trying to navigate this um, today of just, you know, what to tell Trump about his tweeting. It's like the question that has consumed American politics for like the last Eight years and counting, (laughs) like consume Manhattan criminal court today, which is like, what do you tell Trump about the the social media posts? Do you treat them literally or seriously? And and what do you do with them and what can be done about them? But they didn't issue a gag order, which seems like the obvious, you know, you're worried about his social media posts. You're worried about him potentially inciting violence. But they, how, Tyler, how would they, you know, it's like, the, because it's like, because, I, you know, the, I think the position. I don't know, he got kicked off Twitter. But the position, the position the judge is in is just like, how do you restrict the speech of somebody running for president? Yeah. You know, the First Amendment issues that that raises is, I, I think it's a horrible problem to have to deal with, you know, because this judge was just reduced to literally saying to Trump in the courtroom, please do not subvert the rule of law. <laughs> You know, like that was the request from the bench. And Trump was— What did Trump say? It's just not, I, you what know, did his I, lawyers I, say? I, it, it was in, in, interesting because, you know, they're not going to—they can't get in a fight with the judge. You know, in a, in a courtroom, the judge rules. You know, like the judge is in charge. Like, so it doesn't matter if you're a former president to that extent. Like, in, they didn't really argue with him the way that, like, you know, if, if he was on the debate stage and a moderator said, you know— can you stop inciting violence? Like Trump would probably just tear a guy's head off for saying something like that or just or just try to push back the full on, you know, no retreat, no surrender, just attack kind of Trump mode. But that was just you can't do that when you're a criminal defendant in a, in a courtroom. I mean, Trump said maybe eight words I counted, um, you know, in, in, in total in an hour today. I mean, he couldn't say anything in the – and the lawyers played relatively nice because this is the beginning of a long process and, and you can't antagonize a judge in a courtroom in this country. Um, soon I'm going to ask you about the, the, you know, the extremely colorful details of, of what went down. But first, um, I mean, you've said a couple of things that, that are just so interesting. So the exceptional treatment of, of Trump, I mean, everyone agrees that this is an, an unusual arraignment. Um, I mean, how much of that was, you know, something that 
Trump himself sort of set in motion versus um, stuff that had to be done in order to keep things peaceful versus um, stuff that's just kind of like, um, you know, standard form in New York City? Yeah. Um, uh, All of the above, I think, is probably the answer. You know, there have been high-profile prosecutions in this courtroom in the recent history. Harvey Weinstein, DSK, um, Ghislaine Maxwell, um, you know, it's Manhattan criminal court. Uh, There's high-profile proceedings like in this building all the time. That said, you know, the judge today said – or one of the lawyers said that, you know, the hearing today required weeks of security planning. You know, the streets were shut down outside the courtroom. There was crowds, you know, that were – Fine, you know, but also kind of crazy out there, you know. <laughs> like, what, what were they? Uh, you know, it was just like— You were in the heart of it. It was just, you know, there's a little pond outside the courthouse called Collect Pond Park. It's actually sort of the memorial to the pond that was like the freshwater source for Manhattan from the 1600s to like the early 1800s. And then they, you know, they, it's what remains basically— and um, nice little metaphor. <laughs> and the and the cops had set up barricades, so there was a sort of pro-Trump side and an anti-Trump side of the park, and they did their best to kind of keep people in their respective halves of the <laughs> park. Um, and the pro-Trump side was, you know, a, a bunch of. I mean, the the there's a there's a group called the New York Young Republicans Club, and they are an old organization that was recently sort of taken over by a bunch of young kind of MAGAites, sort of Trump disciples. And they had helped organize the sort of the the pro-Trump side of the event. And um, it was sort of a mix of kind of Trump diehards with like 2020 gear um, out and then – Trump weirdos kind of ranting and raving and then and Marjorie Taylor Greene and then and then sort of some politicians <laughs> came by so so first um George Santos came through and I you know I thought I actually thought somebody was going to get hurt I mean there was a crush of reporters um that sort of surrounded Santos and then Santos kind of never stopped walking cuz he was just trying to find somewhere to stand and people just wouldn't let him stand and so he kind of did a circle through the Park and it was just you know it was like being you know at a at a packed like concert you know where you're just like no one is in control of the crowd um, and people were just kind of heckling Santos and 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 Santos was just you know he was I, I I don't know what he was doing but he did kind of a lap through the park and then he like walked out and then Marjorie Taylor Greene who had been invited by the New York Young Republicans to speak um, came and gave a speech through a bullhorn that was being sort of drowned out first by a bunch of yelling. And then by uh, uh, a contingent led by Jamal Bowman, the congressman from um, Westchester and, and, yeah. and the Bronx. He and a bunch of other local uh, New York elected officials had all got whistles and they just kind of came in blowing whistles. I mean, it was just... It was Who just, gave them whistles? I, it was just... It was just <laughs> It was a real circus, but I, I really thought of it as, in some ways, you know, Trump launched his campaign last year, but I really, I, I've, you know, and I, I've been, I've been out there. There have been a kind of pre-event um, two weeks ago after the indictment sort of got on everybody's radar. To me, what was out there was the Trump twenty twenty four campaign. That's what it was. It was, a, it was, a, it was a campaign rally. 
the candidate was being arraigned, but the rally was the rally, you know? And, like, that's what it was. You know, it's like people just voicing their frustration and anger and confusion and and obscenities that they want to get off their chest and making Trump the vehicle for, like, all of those things. and Catharsis. You know, yeah. catharsis and just, like, having a good time with it. Is that how being a Trump supporter manifests itself in New York City, which is, you know, notoriously liberal and not exactly um, – I mean, I guess it is. I was going to say not Trump HQ, but it kind of is. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, I mean, like this, literally for his organization. This, you know, the the crowd at these events, which were small, you know, and mm-hmm. and and like, yeah, probably the ratio of like of Trump supporter to reporter at this event was like, you know, if it was one to one, like that would I'd be a conservative estimate. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there's not a ton of people there, but they're really intense. I mean, I've I've been to Trump rallies, and not everyone is like this, you know, like this was the total diehard, never surrender Trump contingent out there. And they were, I mean, I, on social media, I saw, I mean, there were people wearing, there was a guy wearing a Freddy Krueger costume. There were lots of people who were wearing um, like Trump costumes. Yeah, It that, wasn't just MAGA shirts. It no. was really outlandish stuff. But that's, I mean, I think catharsis, I think is the, you know, it's like. <laughs> catharsis means a different thing it, for different people. But it's, but it's like, you know, costumes, yeah. like, you know, performance, public performance. Like that, that's what this is. I guess that is their candidate. You know, the, and, and, and that's their guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who was the intended audience if Trump himself is, you know, physically unable to – I guess he maybe can watch the footage afterward. But do you think that they were doing this for him? Were they doing it for the liberals of New York? Were they doing it I for mean, you, the media? I, th- I mean, you know, there's so many reporters there. And, the, and there's a lot of people there that obviously delight in the fact that, like, you do something crazy outside and then, you know, a bunch of people say, do you have some time for some questions, you know, and take <laughs> your picture and we'll put you on camera. You're playing and, right into their hands. You know, there. but <laughs> – totally. But, you know, but I think also, like, they feed off Trump. Trump feeds off them. You know, I, I, I can't imagine that Trump thought anything but that that was a great scene out there. If he had walked through, I think he would have been delighted. And, you know, especially considering how glum he was in the courtroom. Like, yeah, that was – in some ways, it, it's, it's uh, you know, they, they wanted to buck up their guy and, and maybe that was the intent of, of, of what they were doing. You'll hear more from Eric Latch in just a moment. You mentioned the courtroom. Let's go. Let's go back into the courtroom. So, where were you sitting? How close were you to Trump? And you mentioned that he looked glum. I mean, was that the general vibe from him that he was unhappy to be there? Because I thought that this was like supposed to be, you know, the beginning of a you know a beautiful hybrid presidential <laughs> campaign perp walk thing. Yeah, he was not happy. Um, this courtroom was on the fifteenth floor of the courthouse, which is a kind of it's like an Art Deco like courthouse from the 30s beautiful, in downtown right? Manhattan. It looks like, you know, think like Arkham Asylum, like Gotham City kind of courthouse. It's like that courthouse. And um, and they had closed the 15th floor. The press sort of had lined up all night. They sort of let us in. You had to go through like two like waves of security. And then the people who had got seats in the courtroom itself, you know, are led into this kind of high-ceilinged, Room with you know in God we trust on the on the front wall, uh, and then two rows of pews with like a center aisle, and uh, it's like seven rows of pews. So it's probably thirty reporters that got in the room, 
and there's like at least as many like court officers sort of standing. Uh, you know, each court officer was assigned one aisle to like look over and make sure that we weren't using electronics. They really, really, really did not want a photograph or a recording of the arraignment to get out. So it's like the, the the court officer's job was to just make sure everybody in there didn't pull out a phone. And, you know, then you had like court clerks and then you had like sort of other security personnel and it was scheduled for like 2.15, like just before 2.30, like the door opens and Trump walks in and he's just stone-faced and he just shuffles up the center aisle, just not looking at anybody, slowly, slowly making his way to the defense table and he sits down. Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, had walked in a few minutes earlier and was sitting in the front row behind the prosecutor's table. And then, you know, shortly after Trump came in, the judge entered and a court officer shouted, all rise, and everybody stood up and everybody sat down. The judge sat down and he said, all right, let's, you know, let's arraign Mr. Trump. <laughs> you know, and, and, Literally, let's arraign Mr. Trump. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was not, that was not the first thing he said, but he said, let's arraign Mr. Trump. Not and, President Trump, and, Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump. And then basically there was a bunch of back and forth between the prosecutors and Trump's lawyers about discovery and sort of the concerns that the government has that Trump will leak or post documents or information that he learns from his lawyers through the discovery process in this in this case. You know, there was a conversation which we already touched on, on, on sort of Trump's posting in general and sort of the rhetoric and this question, you know, that nobody wants to broach head on, but of like how you control the speech of of somebody running for president, of a former president, like in, in the context of a criminal trial. Uh, and then the question of the schedule of the trial itself. Um, the prosecution asked for January of 2024. Trump's lawyers wanted a little later. They wanted in the spring of 2024. And, you know, these things take time in the schedule. These things can drag. And, and I think the, the presumption is that there's going to be a flurry of motions from Trump's lawyers to try to get this thing tossed or reduced before you get to the trial. But potentially, like, there's going to be a Trump trial in the middle of a, like, presidential nominating process. There's been a lot of discourse, you know, sort of leading up to this moment about these particular charges, whether this is the right thing to indict Trump on um, and the fact that it's the first case and that it is – you know, it's it's incredibly complicated. It is a lot less straightforward than he, you know, incited an insurrection on January 6th. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, after your experience being in the courtroom today, hearing the details of the charges, you know, seeing the, you know, just getting a sense of the atmosphere inside the court and out, whether, I guess, like, if, if that changed your opinion at all of, you know, whether this is um, the right thing to do or whether this is going to be, you know, actually going to be effective in terms of bringing Trump to justice. I was surprised by how – I was surprised on two levels. I was surprised first by how serious and really dramatic it felt in the courtroom. I mean, you know, we've all – if you live in the United States of America, you've seen Trump everywhere, on TV, in the White House, on the campaign trail, all, on, you know, he's omnipresent. You have not seen him in a courtroom. That's just not a venue that he has had to navigate and it's a very complicated one for him, I think, you know, and, and for anybody. I mean, I think a courtroom is a – it puts strictures on a person, on a defendant. Even for Trump, that is a big problem and, and I think pretty scary, the power of the justice system targeting you. 
And the other thing I was thinking about is to your point about complexity. I think that like, and I put myself in this category, like I think like during the Trump administration, there was this idea of like, of, you know, and a sort of political concept of like, you know, will it stick? You yeah. know, c- c- will it be, and, and, and this is like the Mueller report question. It's like, how, how complicated is this? And, and will people care or whatever? And the, the thing that I was thinking about in the courtroom is like courts don't care about that. Uh, courts do complexity all the time and the gears keep turning. You know, it doesn't slow down because something gets complicated. And um, I think that that is just, you know, it's something that I think is going to take some time, I think, to settle in. So it's like I, I, I won't even touch the question of like whether this case is a good one and the order that these cases are being brought in and the broader politics. I mean, like those are like sort of debates that are beyond me. I just think that like— and they probably also don't even matter to brag. I, I mean, it's I, just it's not— Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's not a political problem. This is a legal problem. Um, it's not It's not a political situation. It's not a cultural situation that he has to navigate. It's not a business situation, but like a bankruptcy or something. It's like he's in, he's in serious legal trouble. We've never really seen him navigate something like that before, yeah. as you said. Um, it's interesting because even though it's not a political situation or a cultural situation, it still seemingly has um, been a a boon to his um, to his actual political situation, which is the fact that he's he's running for president. I mean, the general feeling, and maybe this is incorrect, is that he has essentially clinched the Republican presidential nomination with this indictment, which is a, a weird. The fact that he is now being you know criminally charged would would help him yeah. at least in that regard. I mean, do you agree with that? You know, it's like, can anybody, even Donald Trump, survive a three-week trial where, like, his face is visible to the world? Everybody reading, like, the ups and downs of his mood from the defense table? I I, I don't know. It's a good question because I feel like there's been so much um, discussion over the the potential of a mugshot. And apparently, you know, sources have said that he wants to put the mugshot on campaign T-shirts and campaign material. But that's like a, a, you know, a very like a static image. You can pose for a mugshot. You can choose to smile or not smile. Whereas in, you're right, over the course of a three-week trial, you're going to respond in ways that are maybe not. They're not even saying he didn't. You know, it's like the Trump thing is like never say you didn't do it. Just say it's not a big deal. Yeah. But, like, think about how different that is in a courtroom, you know? Like, <laughs> Those distinctions are actually incredibly <laughs> they matter. important. They matter, yeah. you know? And it's like they're saying these are trumped-up charges, you know, <laughs> like that they're making more of this than what it is. But they're not saying you didn't do these things. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I hope that uh, you can get some rest. Thanks, Tyler. <laughs> Eric Latch is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read his dispatch from the courtroom at newyorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Sydney Cobb. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.